Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Hey everyone, welcome to the second episode of Education Suspended. Before we jump into the information about today's guest, myself, Jessica Pfeiffer, and Steve Greener, and Jamie interview. I want to take a moment and talk about our sponsorship of the day. So today's episode is sponsored by Kaneen Photography, and I can personally tell you that she does great work. We've actually hired her for several shots. She did our pregnancy shots. Um, she took Quinn's baby photos, and most recently we hired her to do our family photos for the holiday card. And listen, I'm very competitive, but I want you to know that we got a lot of compliments on our holiday card. Um, some people even saying it was their favorite. And not only did she take the photos, but she also designed the entire holiday card, which was pretty cool because we can make it our own and personalize it just how we wanted to do. So I recognize that we have listeners from all over, but if you happen to be in the Denver metro area, go ahead um, and look her up. If you let her know that you heard about her from Education Suspended, she'll give you a 10% discount. So again, it's Kaneen Photography, K-A-N-E-E-N. All right, let's talk about our guest today. We interview and connect with Madeline Albright, who's an interior architect in Boston, Massachusetts. Madeline also has a special place in my heart because she is one of my wife's best friends. And so just to hear the amazing work that she does is pretty cool. Um, she's the author of Ending Disciplinary Architecture in America's Public Schools. So let me say that again, because I can tell you right away that it's an amazing episode. So her book is titled Ending Disciplinary Architecture in America's Public Schools. And we really dive into um, what is the role of the entire physical environment surrounding our students uh, and the impact that it has on learning, both negative and positive. So excited for y'all to be here. Madeline does a lot of work with schools and helping them rethink and enhance their learning environments through design. So without further ado, here is Education Suspended with Madeline Albright. All right, Madeline, thanks for doing this with us. We, okay, so we're gonna do an introduction. We're gonna have you introduce yourself, but I am gonna steal the stage for a second so folks can kind of connect our relationship. And okay. Madeline, Madeline knows a story that I'm gonna share. So just so y'all know who are listening, Madeline and my wife, Krista, are best friends. Uh, they actually lived together in Denver for a while. But Madeline has a special place in my heart because I had asked Krista out on a date our first date actually, our very first date. And I'm nervous and I pull up to her apartment for us to go out for dinner. And then we were gonna hit up this like Halloween party afterwards. And it within seconds was obvious that she had no idea what the hell was going on because here comes Krista down the stairs along with all of her roommates, including Madeline. <laughs> and, they all, and they all pile in the car. And I just kind of ah. like, <laughs> you know, like take a deep breath of like, okay, so this is not going to be our first date. And we start driving and it's a little awkward. And I just look in the rearview mirror back at Madeline and Amy and both of their faces, like they kind of look at one another like, oh my God, this was a date. And Krista totally missed the cues that Pfeiffer wanted to take her on a date. So that was really the first time that, that we met. It was over eight years ago. Um, he was on a date with all, all three of us. All three of them. It was... <laughs> crazy and wild. So that I just had to share that because I think it's funny. And that was that was really the first time that we spent time together. Um, but but again, I'll let you introduce yourself. And what we ask is if you share kind of how you got here, right? How did you get passionate about this? And if you would like a little bit even about your own educational journey as a student as well. Okay. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm Madeline Albright. I'm an interior architect. I'm currently based in Boston, Massachusetts, um, but I was born and raised in Tennessee, um, a somewhat rural area, um, foothills of Appalachia, and mm. I think my own experience and journey in public education was not so positive. Um, there weren't a lot of resources or infrastructure for public services in my hometown, uh, much less public education. 
um, you know, there were a few bright spots. I don't want to say it was all <laughs> humdrum and drab, but um, statistically and for all intents and purposes, I probably should have never ended up where I am today. Um, so kind of my experience in public education is what prompted me and my own trajectory into the world of education um, and kind of serving children who, like myself, I felt like deserved better. Um, so I worked in education for about six years um, as an educator, program coordinator, family liaison, kind of a, a couple of different hats. Um, and then more recently, I had delved into the world of philanthropy. So I was working for a national nonprofit and um, our mission for that organization was increasing the number of high quality public schools in cities all across the US, um, specifically for low income students. Um, so in that role, we were kind of creating a peer network of other folks in education. And I spent a lot of time traveling to the 35 cities that we worked in. Um, just about every week, we would go to a new city. We would meet with city officials, school leaders, principals, teachers, parents, like anyone who has a hand in public education. Um, and we kind of connected on how can we improve our public schools. And so I, I have a specific light bulb moment. Um, we were on a school visit in California. We were um, visiting a school that had been uh, applauded and lauded for this really innovative teaching model. Um, they had an interesting pedagogical um, theory and model that we hadn't really seen elsewhere. Um, so we were outside, we were kind of given their whole intro and their spill to the school. We were super excited. And then when we entered the school, it was like night and day. It was kind of like that you know, Instagram versus reality <laughs> kind of thing. We're like, wait a second, um, this isn't quite what I was expecting. Um, it was an old office, like I think a dental office. They had kind of done a DIY ground up thing where they opened it into a school. Um, the school was actually in a basement. It had no windows. Um, there was nothing defining spaces. It was essentially just like one big room. And what I found inside, like everyone was whispering, even the teachers, the students, everyone had to whisper so as to not disturb their neighbors. Um, and so it was, that was kind of my light bulb moment that prompted me to realize that you can have like a really solid school, you can have the program in place, you can have qualified staff, school leaders, teachers, you got everything dialed in, but that all falls apart if you aren't taking into account the physical environment and the space that learning takes place in. Um, and so that kind of sparked this passion in me um, and this line of inquiry and criticism of like, why aren't we talking about this? At that nonprofit, there were so many other solutions thrown out there and not once did I ever hear anything about the design of the physical environment. Um, and, you know, other questions like, why are they designed this way? Who's designing schools? For who are they designing schools? And what purpose? Um, and so that, that kind of resonated with me and stuck with me for a little bit longer. Um, fast forward, I decided to actually take that research or that line of thinking a little bit more seriously and take it further. Um, so I went back to grad school for interior architecture. I attended Rhode Island School of Design. And it was a program that focused specifically on adaptive reuse. So taking existing buildings and designing new space for new users or a new purpose. Um, so I went through grad school, two and a half year program. There are other studios and courses, of course, but this research, my thesis question, um, carried with me throughout that entire time. Um, and so it culminated into a book um, titled Ending Disciplinary Architecture in America's Public Schools. 
Um, and for those who don't know what disciplinary architecture is, because I, I didn't know what it was until I started my research, it is a legitimate genre of architecture in which designers are intentionally deploying tactics so that the physical environment controls and manipulates the user's behavior. Um, so we see it a lot in prisons, of course, um, but other institutional spaces like hospitals, community centers, public parks. Um, but what I specifically focused on were public schools. Um, and so I think we've probably all heard the analogy of schools being more resemblant of prisons than a, a space for learning. And so that's what this book sought to kind of uncover is why is that um, and what role can designers play in defying that and using architecture in a design um, as a tool for change. Yeah, there's a, you quote Frank Locker in your in your book. And mm -hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna read the quote. I'm probably gonna butcher it, but it says, in the US, many of the same people who design prisons also design schools. What comes to mind when you see a long hall of closed doors that can't be that you can't be in without permission, and a bell that tells you when to come in, when to leave, when class starts and when it ends. What does that look like to you? It's just, yeah, I mean you're right, that that the historical com component. Mm-hmm. You know, I, um, I'll just quick quickly mention yeah. in in Madeline's book or paper or however we she has beautiful pictures showing yeah. all this. Yeah, we're I'm so glad wish that you said we that. Could, it's a podcast. We so wish we could put your pictures up here to show. So that's my plug to say you need to see the document because the yeah. pictures tell a lot. And yeah. so yeah, let's actually say that now. So um, if you do head to the to the website education suspended uh, with Madeline's bio, we'll make sure to have a resource there so you can see some of the visual components of this. Cause I agree, Steve, this is, there's a strong visual aspect to this. Um, Madeline, will you actually go back to your mic real quick and turn it down just a little bit? We are getting a little bit of the feedback. this testing testing that's better thanks okay so, so there's a lot of content i think that steve and i really want to cover um but the reality is we know we aren't going to do an eight-hour podcast yes <laughs> i think one of the things that i liked about you, this book and how you conceptualized it is that you created themes right that are necessary to, to design an effective modern learning environment. And from those themes, you have these elements. I think you have 10 elements. I, I personally would love to hear if you kind of, you know, break those down briefly about the why. And I know Steve, there's other stuff that you're going to want to talk about too, but mm -hmm. let's, let's start with that kind of the themes that you found in your research, right? What exists out there and specifically these 10 elements. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so um, I kind of broke my research down into different sections. The first one was a historical deep dive into kind of the archetype, um, architecturally speaking, of public schools and what has prompted some of these design decisions. Um, and in that deep dive, I was able to identify what specifically I felt like was not working in the design of traditional public schools. Um, so as Jess mentioned, I identified 10 of those. And then um, in return, I kind of promote or propose uh, new ways of designing these 10 elements so that we are in fact achieving a 21st century student-centered learning environment. Um, so the first one is circulation. Um, so this is how users move through space. And I think the quote that you pulled out, Jessica, speaks to this a lot um, and how circulation in traditional public schools is a long dead end corridor. Um, they call it double loaded, meaning there's um, just strings of classrooms along both sides with lockers. And um, it's really where you see the most disciplinary architecture, I think, come through in the learning environment. You're, you're literally confining 
the users into this like funnel. Um, and so it's, you know, an element to maintain social order and there's bells telling you when you can move through it. And it's all kind of this prison factory model type um, scenario that it sets it up for. So it's also um, detrimental in the, the way that you're transitioning. So I think a lot of educators would probably agree that one of the more challenging parts of your school day is managing those transition times. Um, there was a report done by NCS, NCES, the National Center for Education Statistics, um, that said students report twice as much bullying occurring in corridors, so these transition spaces, than they do anywhere else in the school. So cafeterias, playgrounds, bathrooms, um, this is where the most bullying occurs. And that's traumatizing for students. It makes it chaotic for transition times. Um, it's not a positive experience. And then practically speaking, corridors take up like 20 to 30% of the floor plate, um, which is a huge amount of space that you're only using for, you know, sporadic five minute increments here and there throughout the day. It's, you know, it's largely left vacant. So I think that by kind of creatively curating the circulation in a school so that you can recapture that space for learning, make it more positive and inviting um, and not have it be a tool to maintain that social order, I think would be more effective for 21st century learning environments. Um, another element is classrooms. So these are the cells to the cells and bell model. Um, it's a very defining feature of a school, right? Like when you think of a school classroom, I think jumps to everyone's mind. Um, but it's really, it's a relic left over from the industrial revolution um, in which efficiency was everything. All they wanted yeah. to do was streamline the transfer of knowledge. Um, how can a teacher spew information to the largest number of students in the least amount of time? And I think this is detrimental for many reasons. Um, one is that it only supports one type of teaching method. So lectures, presentations, um, it's set up so someone is talking at you. Um, and then it, it assumes that everyone learns the same way, which we know is patently false. Um, so what I propose instead of classrooms are learning zones. Um, so these are less defined spaces and you can think of them more as like a cluster where you can tap into a multitude of learning modalities that are needed throughout the school day. And by strategically placing learning zones within the same footprint of a standard school layout, you're achieving a much broader and richer learning environment um, and a, more of a, like a learning landscape than, you know, this actual box that you're confined to. Um, so kind of literally taking that metaphor, thinking outside of the box and breaking down the walls of these classrooms so you can open up a much more diverse arrangement of learning mm -hmm. that is more representative of the diverse learners that uh, we know occupy the student population. Madeline, did, I just want to make sure I wrote this down right because I loved how you said it. You said the classrooms are the cells to the bells and cells model. Is that what you said? Yeah, so I love, it. I love it. The cells and bells model, are y'all familiar with that term? No, I'm not. It's, um, <laughs> it's kind of I, I read about it in my research. I think I had heard other people like briefly mention it, but it's harking back to the industrial revolution where we had the factory model um, and again, efficiency taking place where um, you were given like a, a cell block and then the bell notifies you to move on to the next cell. Um, and that is exactly how schools are designed. Um, it's how prisons are designed. And so, yeah, to me, I think classrooms are a huge component that we need to rethink um, if we're trying to push the way that we're thinking about learning environments. It's just, it's incredibly restrictive and just not suitable for modern day users. Mm -hmm. oh, okay, sorry, keep going, that was awesome. No, it's okay. Um, 
Let me think. Uh, proper furnishings is one of the design elements. Um, and I think about this really in combination with learning zones. Um, and so when you think about like the human factors of an environment, it doesn't have to even be a school, but um, the ergonomics are hugely important for furnishing. Um, it's, it helps your productivity, it helps you be able to concentrate. Um, we've seen issues where students are developing physical deformities simply because of the, the furniture that we are placing students in. Um, and the furniture, I came to find out, were 100% designed simply for the ability to stack <laughs> and for mass production. There was not a single element of ergonomics considered in the design of desks and chairs. Um, and so, yeah, what we're seeing are physical deformities, they're uncomfortable. Um, and then more practically speaking, they're inflexible. So especially, you know, those chair desk combos where they're connected. <laughs> and it's like, come on, you're, you're actually inhibiting a student from being able to take agency of their learning. They can only face straight ahead and that's it. Um, and so I think the flexibility of furnishings is really important. Um, and also you can change a floor plan around in a matter of minutes with light, flexible furniture. Whereas traditional classrooms, you have the desk chair, you know, you have to call in a facilities manager to come rearrange things. And that takes several days um, at minimum. So if you have light, flexible furniture that is ergonomically suitable, you can easily break out into breakout groups. You can have small discussions. You can have students pull their chair over and have heads down work. Um, you don't have to be restricted anymore um, by the furnishings. And it's just a quick and easy way to define space. Um, I also think it's important because our classrooms nowadays are I think over-programmed. Um, I think a lot of teachers recognize that there are many different ways they need to deliver instruction, but because the classroom is so inhibitive and there's only so much space, what we find is kind of like an over-cramming of stuff and that leads to a more stagnant learning environment. If you don't have the space to move, then you're not going to move. Um, and so I think this could be a solution to that. Um, the way that you're storing things, the way that you can arrange the furnishings to allow for more flexibility, I think is pretty critical. Um, another element is yeah. teacher as facilitator. Um, and I, to be fair, I think um, a lot of people are on board with this nowadays um, in modern pedagogical theories adhere to this for the most part, um, meaning teachers are no longer the sage on the stage and they're kind of taking a more backseat role where they're acting more as a facilitator mm -hmm. um, and less so on the, the passive transference of information that we see in traditional schools where they're just hoping some students absorb the information <laughs> that they're spewing out. Um, but when you look at this spatially, you typically see like a large desk at the front of the room. It's kind of like a throne. Um, it takes up a, a large swath of space in the classroom and it in turn sets up a spatial hierarchy and enforces this submissive orientation where the teacher is the authority, the teacher is in charge and the student needs to obey what the teacher is saying. Um, and so if we're truly trying to design student-centered learning environments, then we need to take teachers out of the center. Um, and I wanna be clear that I'm not trying to say that teachers' needs are important and they don't need to be met, um, but just kind of thinking about how that translates spatially and to the behavior of students, like what does that say when the yeah. teachers are up there in the center? Um, and so, yeah. There's some diagrams to accompany ways that we can think about this um, differently. Yeah. Steve, what's, I guess, what's coming up for you? You taught for 33 years. 
Oh, you know, the, the flex, the, the proper furnishings really hit me hard. First of all, I'm left-handed. So um, I never had a left-handed desk in mm -hmm. all, all of my years. Um, they're all adapted for right-handed people because of this uh, mass production mm -hmm. idea. Um, but the clunkiness of, and, and uh, you know, Madeline, you're 100% right. I think we all as teachers were learning not to be teacher facilitators, but it was a mismatch with our furnishings. It was so hard to move anything. The desks are heavy and awkward and took up way too much space. And they uh, were not adaptable to, to the to setting up little learning centers, even within a classroom walls. You know, there's a lot of flexibility that we really struggled, we tried to do, but it was very, very difficult. And that's what comes up with me, uh, Jessica, is we still, we still dealing with that, those same furnishings because, you know, it's super expensive to, well, Madeline will maybe give us a little more insight into that, but, you know, it's an, it's a huge expense and that money's been spent and we're going to use these desks and, but they were clunky and they were hard to work with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there has been a ton of innovation in this specific area. There are companies that manufacture flexible furnishings. That's all they do. Yeah. Um, and I think we've seen a lot of innovation in workspace environments and offices and, you know, the startup culture, I think, has leaned into this quite a bit. And we've learned a lot of lessons from that industry, but we just haven't seen it hit the yeah. school system in a, in a substantial way. Well, I think we've seen it. I guess here's what I want to say. We've seen it hit the school system. Mm -hmm as another flavor of the month, right? And, you know, preferential seating is a really good example. And I, I know I say that all the time, but I've worked with a number of schools who, yes, spend a lot of money in preferential seating, but they actually don't have the neuroscience behind the why that works, right? Behind the why, what you're saying is vitally important. And so it, it's not lasting and it's, it's slow to start. But what I'm seeing is that schools that understand how the brain processes, the importance of regulation, they're having massive success now in this element of, of being flexible with the items that they provide for kids to learn, to sit, to stand, to walk. Um, so it's that missing piece of the why. So you're kind of bringing all that together, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. I also think a critical component to all of these design elements, but especially to what you're talking about, Jess, is um, training teachers to know to what extent and the possibilities of this flexibility. I've seen, you know, like wobble stools in, installed in classrooms um, alongside more standard seating and furnishings. And more traditionally trained or minded teachers find them a nuisance because the students can like wobble and wiggle and, and be children. Um, and so what you see is kind of this combative element where you're not, it's not being used to its full potential. Um, and so I do think, yeah, having teachers on board or that are trained uh, or maybe additional training to know how to best use these elements is, everything to the success and implementing yeah. it yeah all right keep teaching um, us teacher keep going. <laughs> i got um, i have so many notes i love this so the next up is healthy buildings and these are in no particular order by the way it's just kind of how i'm recalling them um right so this kind of breaks my heart that i even had to put this in my book um but these are just like the human physiological things that we need to exist. Um, and so I kind of broke it down into air, light, temperature, and acoustics. Um, and I think there might be one more in there, but air, we'll start with air. Um, so air quality is huge for users. Um, if you don't have good air quality, you can't focus, you can't concentrate. And what we have found is that America's public schools are actually making students and teachers sick. They have such terrible air quality. Um, it's increasing asthma, it's increasing respiratory illnesses. 
Um, you see higher uh, absences, lower attendance rates for schools that don't have adequate facilities. Um, and there was a study that was done, it's been a while ago now, I think it was in like 1995 when they last did a deep study on this, of um, the state of America's public school facilities. And they found in 1995 that over half of America's public schools need to make substantial investments um, and repairs or renovations to their building just for it to be considered in good condition. Um, so that's not excellent condition. That's not above average condition. It's basically like mediocre. Um, <laughs> and that's, that was half in 1995. Um, we have a huge funding deficit. Uh, that same study, I think, found that I think we need 46 billion additional dollars per year just to bring our school facilities up to standard, uh, standard like living environments, basically. Um, so, and the air quality is huge. If you don't have air that is fit to breathe, um, you know that's we're doing something wrong. Um, you know, so, I, I'm just going to break in quick. Yeah, Madeline, do you think COVID? and dealing with COVID will actually help this yeah. because that seems to be one thing some schools are willing to do. I, I hope so. I think, unfortunately, what we're seeing now is that COVID has exacerbated this inequity, right? Like we don't see good air quality most of the time in poor low-income communities. And if if their school never had good air quality and was never safe for them to attend, I think COVID is, you know, kind of magnifying that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully it, it will, to your point, bring some awareness and how important it is to have uh, an up-to-date air system um, and HVAC system, but um, it's expensive. It's a very expensive yeah. cost to update those components in a building. Um, and especially it's not cosmetic. <laughs> and a lot of people don't even know that they're breathing in bad air quality. It's not like a something physical that you can see. Um, so other renovations tend to kind of jump ahead of uh, HVAC system upgrades. But um, yeah, so air quality is one huge component to having a healthy building. Um, and this can also pertain to uh, natural airflow. So most schools and classrooms don't have windows. Um, and if they do, they're not functioning. You can't operate them. Um, but if you can open a window and have natural air, um, fresh air come in, um, that is a huge component to having yeah. a, a higher air quality index. Um, there's a certain range of carbon dioxide you need in a room. If it's too low or if it's too high, that's when you see people get sleepy, they can't focus, it's hard to concentrate. Um, you know, asthma is a huge crisis. I think, you know, it's one of the, I think the CDC, it's like one of the biggest diseases in youth. Um, and if they're spending the majority of their day in a school or a classroom that has air that is unfit to breathe, that is directly contributing to that. Um, so lighting is also a huge one. Um, mm -hmm. This is both artificial and natural lighting. Having natural light in a classroom has shown um, students progress on math and reading um, tests in, I think 20% is the, don't quote me on that, but I think 20% faster in math and reading uh, measures than students that don't have a window in their classroom. Um, so natural light is also important for mood stabilization. It's restorative. It's part of our circadian rhythm. It kind of maintains our cortisol melatonin levels. Um, so there's the natural light. There's also artificial light. Um, I think we're used to seeing fluorescent kind of green, purple hanging lights or um, that it, it's harsh, it causes glare and it's on or off. It, there's kind of no in between. And so if you can equip your building to have dimmers or 
um, a way to kind of control the level and the coloring of the lighting, which you can easily do nowadays. Um, lighting technology has come a long way in recent years. Um, that can also help support the learning environment. Um, temperature control is huge. Um, if you're too hot or too cold, you can't focus. Um, you become irritable. And most school buildings, there's one central location where they control temperature and that's it. Um, so if you're in one classroom that's freezing, the one across the hall is sweltering, there's no way to accommodate for that. So if you can install thermostats that control specific areas of the building in, in a way that's um, easier for um, administrators to do, that is important. Um, and then acoustic. So, so you're saying I don't have to continue to hang a wet rag on my thermostat <laughs> to get the get the heater to work? Is that what you're saying? Hopefully <laughs> not. Yeah. Um, or it's just yeah. It's it shouldn't have to be that you have to call into the central facilities of a school district to change the temperature in your building, which is what I had to do when I was working in an elementary school. Um, so that took four or five hours <laughs> to even feel it kick in. Um, and it's it's also not sustainable. It's energy inefficient. Um, if, yeah. yeah, so yeah, there's, there's that, that in mind. Mm -hmm. um, and then acoustics is the last part of the healthy building environment. Um, this is the most common complaint of teachers in their, in their working environments is acoustics. Um, it inhibits what and how students learn. If they can't hear properly, they can't focus. Um, you get noise from adjacent classrooms, kind of the spillover noise. But what research found is that actually the, the biggest culprit of acoustic discomfort was actually the mechanical system. So super loud air vents or air conditioning systems, heating systems that are clanging, um or kind of lights yep exactly Buzzing. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's a big one um and or if you have depending on where your school is located issues with outside noise like traffic um equipment sirens those types of things um and so that can all be designed uh to be properly suitable for a classroom um they have sound acoustic ratings in most building materials that can help accommodate more acoustic comfort in schools. Um, but traditional public schools, you get the concrete blocks um, and that's kind of it. They, they don't really take too much into account how acoustically sound a space is. Um, so next up, we have welcoming entry. Um, so entrances, I think, are critical to schools because it is, it is kind of your first interaction. Um, it's your shining moment. And it's also yeah. a point of transition for students, teachers, even community members. So where it's you're not just coming. A, yeah, sorry, can I interrupt you? It's not just a point, any point of transition. It's the biggest point of transition. Yeah. Coming into yeah. and leaving the learning environment. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Um, and so what you typically see is this really foreboding fortress-like building. Um, it's constricted. There's a double door. You're dropped off right outside of the double door. And then you kind of enter through this space. Sometimes you're met with metal, metal detectors and security guards. Um, it's just overall a pretty constrictive, uninviting experience. Um, and especially if you think about students who are coming from difficult situations or more troubled home lives, this is the moment where you are inviting them in and you're transitioning them to what will hopefully be a positive thing for them. Um, and so what does that say when it, it doesn't come off as that? Um, mm. I think it's also critical for community engagement and identity and school pride. This is where you can kind of have the character of your school come through. Um, it's public facing and um, it's where you can kind of identify and the community can kind of pull in and let it shine. This is the pride. Um, 
And so what I propose in my book is thinking almost like curating how students are transitioning to school. So I don't think it's, it stops and ends when they get dropped off. I think it could go even further than that. Um, there are some precedents where schools have um, pulled in landscaping. They've like um, designed a green space or like a, a pathway. You obviously can't do that for every student and every home, but if there's you know certain modes of transportation of how students arrive to school, what if we curated that and designed that so that it's actually a positive and really fun, inviting way to transition? Um, next, we have connection to nature. Um, so we know Huge. this is yeah. more than just so like natural lighting. Um, yeah. It's just, it's how you enhance learning. It offers healing and relaxing properties. Um, it opens up curricula for teachers that you can't mm. tap into when you're in a classroom um, and has, it's, I think one of the most critical ways to provide a varied and enriched learning environment. Um, and most of the time students can't access this at home either. So if we're not providing it in school, then there may be no way for them to access this connection at all. Um, we know that it's critical to child development, but we also know that 99% of our academic learning takes place indoors. And so yeah. We're denying that development to our students and children when we're not designing that into the learning environment. Um, and so I advocate for a more seamless integration of that. I think typically in traditional schools, you see, you know, double door exits at the end of the corridor that go to a playground. Um, but that's not really connection to nature. It's just a way for kids to kind of get their energy out and give people a break. Um, and so if there's ways to kind of more seamlessly integrate that, um, you'll have a much richer um, learning environment. Madeline, there's a hypothesis that I used to teach about at the University of Denver in their Institute for the Human Animal Connection, uh, the biophilia hypothesis. Mm, yes. um, it's actually a really good book called the biophilia hypothesis, but essentially it is, it's saying, right, that as human beings, that all of us essentially have an innate desire, tendency to want to connect to nature and other and other life forms, right? Um, animals being the easiest one to think about. And so, yeah, I mean, you don't see this in schools. No. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's called the Biophilia Hypothesis. It's a really interesting book. Yeah, biophilic design is like a whole genre of architecture and design wow. um and i studied a lot of that in um, my research and how that can also be implemented to deepen your connection to nature it doesn't have to be you're physically outdoors but there's other design methods right. that you can employ to right. make that connection awesome. um, so. I, I taught in a school that had for whatever reason of design it was not it was built way maybe in the 50s, um, but it had two courtyards. And, and in those courtyards, we had pheasants and ducks and, um, you know, birds showing up, you know, not domesticated anyway, but, um, and, and windows that opened up to fresh air from those courtyards and the sounds of those creatures. The kids were so attracted. They would stand mm -hmm. at the windows in the hallway and gaze into these courtyards. And then we had a flood and that school got destroyed and we had to repurpose a city auditorium for school and lost all of that green space and windows and fresh air. And boy, you talk about a hard transition. Um, it just is not as soul satisfying when you can't have green space and access to it in a meaningful way. So I'm 100% with you on this one because I, I, I experienced it in a visceral way. It just yeah. was so different. That's a great testimony too, because it's hard to scientifically prove these things sometimes when it's it's going off of senses or more innate um, or like emotive things. Um, it's hard to put data to it. So a lot of people don't think that it's a valid thing to focus on. 
but it is, it's hugely important. Mm -hmm. um, so next element I'll dive into is um, advocating for passive observation instead of overt security measures. Um, and this for me is something that really resonates deeply with me, um, but it's also hotly debated. Uh, yeah. So I, we are experiencing gun violence uh, in schools at a rate that has never been seen before. Um, and I, I don't wanna get into the whole debate about my gun control philosophy and, <laughs> and policies, um, but I do feel strongly that the answer cannot just be tacking on these prison-like militaristic style components into our schools. It's traumatizing. It is detrimental to how we have connections with the community and the staff members with our students. Um, and it just, it can't be the answer. Uh, and what, what we've seen because of this increase of violence is the use of metal detectors, you see students getting patted down when they enter the school. They have to carry clear backpacks so you can see what contents you're bringing in. We have the installation of police officers in schools who are not trained to work with kids most of the time. Um, and I think what we're seeing are way more adverse psychological effects than it does at providing the perceived security. Um, I think it negates the creation of an open inviting space for students. It's intimidating. It, and it's, it runs counter to the inclusion and the community engagement that we know is critical for a school to thrive um, and succeed. So I think a lot about this, particularly as it pertains to students of color who are victims of trauma from this very system. Um, and it, this system has never provided them with protection. Instead, they've seen it more as a tool for prosecution and we're seeing it in school buildings now. Um, and so I think the way forward is now more passive ways to, to secure a building and to make it safe. Um, so in my book, I propose um, something called passive observation, where you are designing the space so that the sight lines are more open. Um, so there can be interventions when these situations arise, but it doesn't need to be, like I said, with these police, prison, militaristic style components. So um, administrators, adults, teachers, principals, these are the people that are kind of best positioned um, to intervene. So if we are designing their workspaces so they have visibility into common areas or entrances where they can just quickly look up, intervene if they need to, um, and then you know, get back to work or, or move on, that is a much better um, solution than some of these other tactics that we have started putting into our public schools. Um, and then, so we have community engagement. This is number nine or community focused. Um, so I think when communities thrive, schools thrive and vice versa. Um, and I also think that having a dilapidated school building has trickle down effects. Yeah. If like, I think yeah. how the school building looks is a direct sentiment of how the community feels about school. Um, and so if you're not investing in the schools, then the communities aren't going to be invested in the schools. Um, so it's kind of this symbiotic relationship um, where it's so critical to bring the community along with you when you're designing a school. Um, I think it's important that it is happening with them and not to them um, and that their voices are heard. The school is a, a huge part of the community. There are a lot of resources that are um, that trickle down to the community at large that take place in schools. Um, and I don't think that has ever been taken into consideration um, in the design of traditional public schools. And then the last, the 10th one um, is adaptability. Um, 
And so this, I, I see both like on a minute to minute type adaptability and then year by year um, type of adaptability. So if you look at um, a classroom, it's pretty stagnant. This plays into the proper furnishings a little bit, but um, it's stagnant, you can't move it, it's inflexible and it's hard to adapt. The furniture is clunky um, and you're confined by the four walls. Um, so you should be able to have a school where minute by minute you can change things up and you can make it work to whatever task that you have um, going on at that moment um, instead of just having one way all the day, seven, five days a week. Um, and then adaptability in terms of long-term purview. So uh, we know school populations fluctuate. They go up, they go down, they shrink and expand. And what you often see um, when a school has kind of outgrown their building, they haul in trailers and they kind of tack them on site. And, um, you know, it has a very utilitarian role and doesn't actually think about the long-term needs of a learning environment. Um, but if a school was intentionally built to kind of expand and contract with that, um, you would have a, a much more successful long-term use of the school building um, instead of one, <clears throat> excuse me, instead of one that becomes outdated um, pretty much, you know, every year as it changes. Um, so yeah, I think, those are the 10 design yeah. elements. Wow. I know that was a lot, but. No, it, it's so good. You, and you write in your book, right? These elements while individually providing standalone solutions should be, should be considered in their entirety when applied to future sites. But then you say, which I love, because you also have this realistic perspective like where schools might be out now. You write, you say, nevertheless, certain types of schools might choose to intentionally deploy these design elements unequally. For instance, a naturalist-based school might choose to hone in on the connection with nature, while a personalized learning-focused school might prefer to amplify adaptability in learning zones. So you really, obviously, yes, in an ideal world, schools are able to do all 10, but that's not where a lot of public schools are at right now. Right. And so just no. a shining light on them. And, and that, that kind of really leads to a question I wanted to ask, um, Madeline, is, you know, we can't in many cases, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We just, we just got, there's some things that aren't going to change. What, what do you think are the, some of the best first steps? People are gonna be listening and say, well, what is, what is realistic to, and I'm saying that to build momentum, not to, not to disregard any of those 10 very important elements, but where have you seen schools start and build momentum towards success in more areas? That's a, Great question. Um, I To kind of back up a little bit. So these 10 design elements, um, I do think you need all 10 and they all kind of work in tandem with each other. Um, but I also specifically was looking at this through the lens of adaptive reuse. Um, and so taking existing buildings and transforming them to a new use, a new purpose. Um, and so to choose from the tin um, and while adapting a space, I think circulation and classrooms would probably be the top two to make the most transformative experience. Um, but they're also structurally the hardest and probably financially um, yeah. the biggest moves. Um, so it kind of depends on what resources are available to the school. Um, I think there's more cultural components that you could employ pretty easily, such as passive observation, um, teacher as facilitator, um, connection to nature. I think those things can kind of be retrofitted or accommodated in a building pretty easily with um, uh, less resources. Um, furnishings could also be something you know it's it's kind of hard to choose just one <laughs> yeah, yeah because they I just do think, all work know, in tandem with yeah, each other yeah we're, we're going to be looking at a at a crisis of money crisis uh maybe mm -hmm. for the next two or three you know i don't know how many years but it's going to last a while 
Yes. We're, we're going to be resource poor for a while, but that doesn't mean some changes can't be made. I guess that's what I'm looking at. Like what, and that's what you're referring to, but that seems to be what's important right now. What can we do mm-hmm. with, without much money? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we're already pretty resource poor in terms of <laughs> facilities for uh, public schools. Like I referenced earlier, you know, they, they say we need $46 billion a year to update most of our school facilities. Um, and so I was kind of proposing a new archetype altogether, like why update these buildings that are already, like they'll never be brought up to date. Um, instead, how can we look at disused or unused buildings? Um, you know, I think on average, the cost of a new school build is $40 billion. Um, and that's a huge cost to bear for school districts. And so if we're thinking, you know, fiscally responsibly here, like adaptive reuse is a way to combat that. It could be cheaper by using existing spaces, um, kind of transforming them into a school versus starting from the ground up, finding the land and, you know, all of that. So I'm finding it very ironic, right? That it's how do you said the reuse piece that it's hard, that it's easier to adapt a space that was never a school, let's just say an old warehouse, to embed these ten elements and be a better learning environment than it is to adapt some of the current public schools that we have now to make them right an effective learning environment. Like that's just mm-hmm. a little bit ironic, um, in my, from my perspective. I, I love that adaptive reuse idea. I mean, I don't think I know enough about it. I'm going to read read more, but. Um, yeah, I'm thinking, will it allow us to keep more schools in in neighborhoods? That's a big concern mm-hmm. of mine is schools are leaving their own neighborhoods and yeah. maybe adaptive reuse would allow us to make schools more local to a neighborhood. Is any thoughts about that? Oh, absolutely. Um, so in my book, I go into this in more detail, but um, adaptive reuse is not only can it be cheaper than a new build, um, it is a way to stay in the community. And in most cases, it could be a form of reparation for the community. Um, I know Jess has heard this before, but I think it speaks volumes when you come in with a bulldozer versus coming into a building that is already known um, and accepted into the community and updating it and transforming it to a place for the community. Um, But a huge cost or a huge reason why new school builds are so expensive is because of the land. Um, It takes acres to to build a new school, Um, but we don't actually need all of that space. If we're thinking about it differently and kind of almost thinking of them more as micro schools so they can Mm -hmm. stay in the neighborhood in the community Um, You don't have to go to the suburbs to find the three, four plus acres that you need for a new school build. You can transform a dilapidated warehouse that's in the city center or, you know, some other unused building that has laid vacant. Um, It doesn't have to be, you know, this, the way that we've always been thinking about schools. Um, It doesn't have to be this like box. Um, And so I think some cities globally have done a good job at thinking um, about how to utilize space differently. Um, but I think adaptive reuse is a great way to stay connected with the community, um, especially in terms of schools. And, and everyone can know that Madeline has some, again, beautiful pictures of some yeah. of these uh, projects in several different countries, including our own, um, that mm-hmm. are amazing to look at really yeah oh madeline um krista and quinn are, not, are so sad they can't be here to say hello they send their love uh, but I, I can't thank you enough for what you're doing um and i'll just be honest right like i knew what you were studying in grad school right we would talk about it and it wasn't until again i brought you on to partner with that agency down in texas who's you know kind of in the midst of this and you presented to this, this board of founders and philanthropists. And I, I literally walked away from that like, oh shit, like, this is phenomenal. So thank you for sharing it. 
with us and with our listeners. And I'm sure you're going to get a lot of questions. Um, again, the title of your book, let's just say it one more time, Ending Disciplinary Architecture in America's Public Schools. That right there just says enough. So yeah. thank you for, thanks for doing all this. Thanks for having me. I'm yeah. really excited to share this information and research. And I think um, just to at least ask the question of like, how can we think about this differently? Um, and it, it might be uncomfortable for some to, <laughs> to read some of this and be like, that could never work. Um, but at least, yeah, just start that line of inquiry and thinking about how we can use design as a tool for change. So yeah, well, we always say dream big. So here we go. Yes. Awesome. Thanks, Madeline. That's Thanks right. for having me. Bye. Nice to meet you.